Hi, I'm Jo Clark, and thanks so much for joining me today. This is the Redefining Midlife podcast, a podcast designed for the 40 plus woman who is determined to challenge society's myths and beliefs around midlife. It's for the woman who is inspired and ready to define midlife her way. Join me each week as I chat to health and wellness experts for up-to-date information on how to live well, as well as some special conversations with incredible everyday women redefining what midlife can look like. Here's to making our next half of life even better than the first. This is the last of the recaps that features another two popular episodes. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, to celebrate turning 55, I decided to have some recap episodes that will lead us into a very special celebration for episode 55. And today I'm featuring Letitia Berthelsen from episode 26. Letitia openly and bravely shares not one but two devastating life experiences that have shaped the life of her and her family forevermore. And you'll also meet Melina Bagnato from episode 20. Mel is an absolute firecracker of a woman with a long career in fashion. And in our conversation, she openly shares her life journey so far. And she also shines a light on body image and how she helps women to understand, accept and love the body they're in. As always, share the episode with a friend who you know would enjoy it. And it would mean the world to me if you would leave a rating and a review because this helps the show to reach more people just like you. Enjoy listening to these amazing women. Welcome, Letitia, to the Redefining Midlife podcast. And as we are friends, it's going to be at times it's going to be um, probably a little bit more personal that we can say things to each other that I may not ask or, or a guest may not respond in a certain way. So I really thank you for this time that you're going to be giving us today. And we're going to be sharing some really personal things. So I also thank you in advance for your bravery. And I know how honest a woman that you are. So you're going to say it as it is, and we're going to strap ourselves in and uh, have you take us on this journey. Thanks, Joe. It's a really great opportunity, I think, to sort of share probably the last 10, 15 years of um, my life. And if it can help someone understand what I've gone through may help them in some way, that's the positive out of this, I think. Yeah, I'm not very good at selling myself, but um, yes, it'll be very raw and um, straight to the point. So you and I met through the friendship of our sons, our boys who were away at boarding school together. And I've only come to know you as the amazing woman that you are over the last probably less than 10 years. And I've only heard a few stories of the past and your past life. And I'm busting to find out what younger Letitia was like in her earlier years. What was that time of life like for you? Well, my younger years were um, just living life to the fullest and not really having too much of a plan in front of me, just having a good time with my friends and working. I didn't have any aspiration of going off to university. I think looking back, I always wanted to sort of maybe meet the right man, settle down and have children and just work and be involved in your community. So um, with that, I had a couple of heartaches and heartbreaks and swore off men altogether um, <laughs> and then um, took myself on a P&A cruise and had the best time. 
So um, when I got back off the PO cruise, they had lost my luggage. My flatmate had moved out. Mom and another flatmate had moved in. And unbeknownst to me, that flatmate that moved in had broken up with a friend of mine. And while I was on the cruise, she had met a man from Mundabra. So she called in and said, what are you doing on the weekend? And I said, well, not much. They've lost my luggage, so I can't really do much. And she said to me, well, how about you get in the car with me and come to Tarun Camp Draft? I thought, oh, well, I've never been to a camp draft, so off I toddled. Well, I was the only woman there in a pair of shorts. And God, they were denim shorts because, honestly, I was really out of my comfort zone. I had no idea what they were doing at a camp draft. So for those that don't know, it is, a you know, one of Australia's um, biggest horse sports and they chase a beast in the yard and they've got to do a figure eight outside the yard around pegs and put it through a gate. And unbeknownst to me, that's where I met Mark. He um, eyed me off from a distance. I had no aspirations of meeting a man, so I promptly um, sat myself down at the bar at 10 o'clock and proceeded to have a bit of fun. And then that night was uh, the 20th of March, 31 years ago, I think now, and I remember having a slow dance with Mark and then we went back to where our swags were, never slept in a swag, and my girlfriend decided, uh-uh, see you later, I'm going to go and check out my new man from Mandabra and left me standing there with this swag rolled up and Mark standing beside me. So we sat around talking for a very, very long time until the sun come up and the rest is history. So Oh, he must have been fairly smooth back then, hey? Oh, not that he's not smooth now. Sorry, Mark, you're, you, I'm sure. Yes, and then from there on back in those days it was telephone calls. Yeah. Um, no mobile phones. Um, so we used to phone each other and then my friend and I used to travel to Mundubber on weekends. And, then and so how far like, was that for you? Was was that? Um, from Billawilla to Mundubra is about two and a half hours and we'd meet at the local pub in town. Mark would come in from town, pick me up and then drop me off on a Sunday. And then my friend got into university and then I just travelled down by myself. Uh, yeah, tried to learn as much as I could about grazing life on the farm, living um, on a farm and yeah so that's how that all started so backwards yeah. and forwards a bit of a long distance relationship I suppose you would say and we did that for about three years before he popped the big question and yeah the rest is history. Oh that's so and, and in that time you've had you've raised three boys? Yeah we have three beautiful sons um, it is the biggest achievement of my life I get very emotional when I talk about my family and my boys because they are my world I probably would fall on a sword for them um, if I had to give up a kidney all my life I would hands down do that for them and they're my rock they're they're my everything so yeah mm. oh that's really special so you know we've both experienced firsthand lots of those positive things that happen when you when you live a life on the land and but it's not always rosy and we've no. discussed some of those things. 
But you and your family went through a really, really um, incredibly difficult time back in 2012 when your husband, Mark, had a very serious accident. Can you share with us what happened then? Yeah. Um, So back then, Mark and I were in partnership with his brother and my sister-in-law in an orchard. We also had our grazing business. We also ran a Charolais stud on on the side, not on the side, as part of our business as well. Um, Mark also looked after his um, parents' grazing entity as well. So he was very a very busy man um, driving a truck from the orchard to the packing shed. So um, just a bit of a backstory into his accident. So um, we also had country in Chinchilla. So we used to send our bats over to Chinchilla to grow out. So he was over there mustering with his father and um, they'd just finished mustering. His father took the load down to the feedlot and Mark was putting the cattle away back into the other paddock. So we had two paddocks that was divided by a road, which was only used by our neighbour at the end twice a day, once in the morning and once of an afternoon, picking kids up off the school bus about 500 metres away. And our two gates were boarded his front gate or back gate, I suppose. So this one day, I just phoned Mark to say, how are you going? How are you travelling? What one can I expect you home? And he said, oh, I'm just pushing them back over. I'm just at the gate now and I shouldn't be too much longer. And then next minute I hear him yelling at the dogs, you know, get over, get over. And he's whistling at the dogs at the gate. And I said, oh, well, it sounds like you're a bit busy there. I'll let you go. So what had happened was the cattle had blown out on him and started going up the road. So he then had to jump. Well, what we think has happened, because he doesn't have any memory of it, is that he's jumped on his horse, he's got in front of them and turned them back around. But as he was coming back down that road, Chinchilla is um, known for its melon hole country. And we tend to think that his horse has done a, a, had a tumble in one of the mel- melon holes and had actually rolled on his head. And um, no one, he's very lucky to be alive because that particular day the neighbour was going up the road to pick the children up. And he saw Mark's dog just at the corner of his eye and he said, oh, Mark must be mustering over here and thought, what is that dog licking? Or, you know, had its head down. The dog was actually licking Mark's face because he had vomited and um, if he hadn't seen him, wouldn't have seen him in the grass, would have driven straight past him. If he hadn't seen the dog, Mark would have died then and there because he would have choked on his own uh, vomit or aspirated. And, um, yeah, so from there they got the ambulance to him and then I got I was working in the packing shed of our orchard at the time and it was about 5.30 of an afternoon. Mary, my sister-in-law, come running over to say, Mark's had a horse accident, they're getting the ambulance to him, they're taking him to Toowoomba. Lane was at home at the time. The two boys, um, Luke and Adam, were at boarding school. So Luke must have been year 10, Adam was year 8 and Lane was at home. So I had actually dropped Lane at home, went back to the shed to pack the truck 
um, for it to go with a load of fruit. And I've just said to Mary, because she come running over to me to say Mark's had his accident um, and they're taking him to Toowoomba. So Mark's a very competent horse rider and I just thought, oh, yeah, righto. He's had one really bad horse accident before where he sort of busted his pelvis once before and I thought, oh, yeah, Mark's tough. He's right. I'll just jump in the car and I'll take off to Chinchilla. So, um, and I did ask Mary to go and get Lane and, you know, look after him. So by the time I got to Chinchilla, I walked into the emergency room and I was just literally slapped in the face. And from that moment walking in, our world started to spiral out of control. I'm a very controlled person. I need things in place. I have lists. I do things like this. And when, when something like this happens in your life and you can't control it, it is very hard to fathom what was going on because when I walked in, Mark's head was actually swollen and he had big black eyelids, like purple. Mm. I knew he was all right spinal-wise because he kept coming in and out of consciousness saying, I need to go to the toilet, I need to go to the toilet. I had his father and his sister in the room as well and the nurse was trying to keep him still. Anyway, I ended up rousing on him and said, you can't go to the toilet, I need you to keep still. So at that point I knew things weren't too bad but when I got there, they said, we're not taking him to Toowoomba. He's going straight to Brisbane. We're airlifting him out. I went, okay, righto. And the whole two hours of driving to Chinchilla, I was in and out of service, so I tried to get onto my mother and she wouldn't answer the phone. Said, Come on, Mum, because I have a very close relationship with my mother and she's my, she always grounds me and I needed this grounding. And I remember pulling up at Dark Creek, which is a little service station to go to the toilet, wash my face, have a chuck because, yeah, just your thought process and when you had no service and you couldn't talk to anyone, mm -hmm. I couldn't even phone each other all the time and just vet the day's activities or whatever could not do that and um, I kept phoning mum no answer no answer and then my stepfather eventually answered the phone and he said to me I said oh mum home and he said yeah she's just walked in and had you know bone graft on her jaw remember she just had surgery and I've gone oh shit that's right oh okay um he said what's wrong and I said well is she able to talk and he said oh no, not really, love. <laughs> well, okay. You don't mind putting her on, though. Can I just have, he's going, what is the matter? And I just said, Mark's had a horse accident and it's not good and they're taking him to Brisbane. Well, she yeah, soon learned how to talk with the bone graft on the jaw and I said, I don't, I don't know much else than that. Um, and I said, I've got to get myself to Brisbane um, because I wasn't allowed on the flight. We learnt later the reason why I wasn't allowed on the flight was because they didn't think he would even make the flight survive. Um, oh, wow. Flight. Yeah. 
So um, once they got him in the air, I thought, oh, Christ, I hate driving in Brisbane. I don't even know my way around Brisbane. And fortunate for me, I had my auntie that lived in Brisbane and we're quite close as well. So I phoned her and I, and she is an ICU nurse trained. And I said to Davida, um, hey, um, just wondering if you can help me out. I'm just going to come into Brisbane, um, be there in a couple of hours. I said, Mark's had a major horse accident. I said, Davida, his head is swollen and he has the biggest purplest eyes. I've never seen anything like that. And she said to me, are you sitting down, Bubba? Because she calls me Bubba. And I said, no. She said, I need you to sit down. And I sat down on the hospital steps at the front of Chinchilla there and she said he has sustained a major head injury. He has fractured his head and what happens is the blood pours into the eyelids and that what that is what we call raccoon eyes. She said, you're going to be down here for a long time, not just weeks, honey. You're going to be down here for months. I've gone. I said, um, well, can I meet you at the hospital? And she said, we'll meet you in Toowoomba. So I had to, you know, the hardest thing was to tell the boys. Yes. And um, at the time I had got on to the housemaster and I said, I need Luke to have his phone on him. I told him what had happened and I said, I need to call in and see the boys um, before I go on to Brisbane. And I said, it's going to be midnight when I get there. And he's, he was fine. The school was great. So I called in, saw the boys, gave him a briefing and then jumped in the car with Davida and we went into the PA. So going into the hospital, I was met with a nurse and a doctor and they sat down and they said that he has sustained a head injury. They've put a probe into his head to monitor the swelling. And he said the next 48 hours are critical. If we can get Mark to survive that, we've got some chance of him returning home. I just remember thinking, to when we, and we were in a small room. I don't understand why they're going to put you in a small room because mm. the walls just felt like they were crushing my chest. And the male nurse at the time said to me, Mrs Bertelson, are you okay? Because I must have went white. And I said, no, I'm not. And he, I said, I need a toilet. And he took me to the toilet. And as I'm walking up the corridor, I sort of lost balance and he caught me and then I went to the toilet I had a bit of a cry I washed my face and I, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and going Jesus love take a teaspoon of cement you've got to toughen up here so I sucked it up went back and um, they were moving into the ICU and then we got up there a couple of hours later and Davida was on the phone to mum early hours and I remember walking past Dee to go to the toilet and I overheard her saying to mum, um, I've seen the scans, it's not good, you need to get here because he's not going to pull through this and Letitia's wow. going to need you. And, yeah, I just collapsed in the toilet again and, yeah, had a little mini moment and then came out and Mark was in an induced coma for three weeks. And I walked into his room and I stood there and I said to him, if you're going to, if you've got to go, you go. 
what I fully understand. But if you are going to come back to the kids and I, you need to step up to the batting plate and have it's all in. It's our family motto. If you start something, we finish it. So if you're going to come back to us, you make sure that you're ready to fight. I said, but if you've got to go, you've got to go. And um, I don't know if that helped. I'd like to tend to think it did because the very next day when they, um, I was beside his bed, the doctor came over and said, we need to have that family meeting. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't do this. Like, how do you, how do you plan your life without your significant other? And um, we walked into the, the room and sat down and he said to me, I don't know what's happened, but overnight he has started to come back. Miracle, I think. Um, so, yeah, and then every day after that was, you know, his eyes would open up the next day. And then the next day his eyeballs were moving around the room. The next day he was squeezing hands and, yeah, so there was progression every day. So you just had to take a positive out of the negative every day when you walked out of that hospital because, yeah, you just got a little bit of your soul was just sucked away when, you know, you're there all day and, yeah, it was just, it was awful, Joe. absolutely oh, awful. I, I can only but imagine how horrific that must have been for everyone in the family, mm. to you mm. as, a, as a wife, to see your husband going through something like that and then thinking about what what, what happens if he is gone. Like, I, mm. It would have been just horrendous. But thank God mm. that didn't happen. Mm. It's mm. made you both stronger and your family stronger yeah. as well. So that's if there's any good in something like that happening, that, that is one of the the incredible yeah, things. And, and that's that's the beauty looking back now. It, it's made us a stronger couple it's made us stronger parents. It's cemented our relationships within ourselves and our children. And that's the positive. I yeah. mean, yeah, I really don't think that if Mark had his accident, we would probably have half or we'd have the, a good relationship with our children. But I think that has really helped. Yeah. And I'm a big believer. You've got to take a positive out of a negative wherever you can. So you've gone through hell and back more than once over the last couple of years and you've just gone told one huge massive life story that I think for, for many they would they would hope that that would never be open like a, that book would never be opened again. But you had been diagnosed with breast cancer and I know yeah. that your story that you're going to share with us is going to have an impact on anyone who listens and without being overly dramatic it, it could actually save someone's life in that it might get them to check their breasts themselves yeah. or be really vigilant with that. So can you tell us how your cancer was detected? Yeah, so life was going really well, Joe. Like um, everything was just beautiful. The boys had, you know, finished school. They were on their own career paths. You know, Lane had started his apprenticeship. Adam was halfway through his apprenticeship and Luke was in the territory doing his thing and he'd met a beautiful girl and brought her home and we were looking forward to their wedding in March. And um, so the backstory there was 18 months prior to being diagnosed, I play a bit of squash 
I have done for a long time. So I took a whack to the boob um, playing squash and a, a couple of months later I noticed that there was a bit of a, a lump there. So I took myself off to the doctor. Actually, I had a mammogram done and it came back clear. So that was like September, October. And then in January that year, I noticed the lump. So off to the doctor and he sent me away from a mammogram and a ultrasound and it came back as a five mil cyst. So that was all good. Life's going on, working, you know, um, just enjoying life. Um, getting ready for Luke's wedding and then 12 months later it started to get a bit sore and I thought oh it's got to be hormonal because it was wasn't sore all the time it was just around that time of month and you know you, it did sore and um, then we had Luke's wedding and you know, I just kept putting it off <clears throat> for about three for about three months it started to ramp up and then Easter came and um, Good Friday, I remember, because that night I just could not sleep. It was that painful. And one of my very dearest friends is a um, midwife, and I saw her the next day and I said, hey, you know that lump I told you about? Jesus, it gave me curry last night. I could not sleep. It was that painful. And she said, can you get yourself to the doctor first thing Monday? Yeah, Okay. So come Monday was my RDO. I'm in doing book work for the business and she phoned me and she said, have you made that appointment yet? I said, no, no, I'll get to it this afternoon. I'm just doing the baths at the moment. And she said, if you don't make it, I will. You need, and I thought, mm, okay, this could be a bit serious. So off I toddled into the doctor. He had a poke and said, oh, yes, definitely a lump there. Mark could feel a lump. I could feel a lump. And then he sent me away again for an ultrasound. So I'm going over to Bundaberg thinking, yeah, ultrasound, mammogram, it's the cyst, it's probably just growing in size and it's on a nerve sort of thing. I should have known something wasn't right when I was shopping and they phoned me to say, we need you to come back to have a needle biopsy. Okay, well though. Something funky with this um, cyst going on. So off I go back in, have the needle biopsy, and off I go. And then I get a, a phone call from this doctor's surgery, and they said, oh, Dr. Ung would like to see you about your results. So, oh, yeah, okay, Elaine, um, which is his wife, and the receptionist. I said, oh, I've got to have a tooth pulled out today. So is it really that important? Because, like, you know how many times you've been to the doctor and they just tell you it's good, it's just a cyst, like, you know. Mm. And she said, I'd be cancelling that root canal, Letitia. And I said, okay, I'll see you in an hour. And I remember going in, sitting down, and he said, I don't have good news for you, Letitia. He said, it's breast cancer. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay. All right, we'll just get this out. And he said he, he was reinforcing to me it's not good news Letitia it's breast cancer and I said does that mean I've got to have chemotherapy and he said oh most definitely he is 88 I might add this doctor yeah. and he said oh most definitely and when he said that I thought to myself oh my god it's just got real Letitia so yeah anyway I walked out and he said, you need to get to the specialist, I'll refer you. And um, I remember walking outside, phoning Mark and telling him and 
he got quite upset um, because, you know, when you tell people you've got breast cancer or the word cancer, they tend to think that it is death row. And um, I said, it's all okay, don't worry about it. I've just got to, you know, go and see the surgeon in Brisbane. We'll, we'll get through this. And then I find mum, and when I find mum, that's when I got a bit upset about it too. So then it was straight into um, see the surgeon in Brisbane on the Monday. He referred me to the oncologist um, the Thursday. The following Monday, I was back having chemo education, surgical consult Tuesday afternoon, surgery Wednesday for the porter cath, wheeled out of hospital at 5.30, back for first chemo treatment at 8.30 the Thursday the next day. So I had six months worth of chemo, had a month off, then surgery, I had a month off, then radiation and um, six months of tablets. So, um, yeah, that was pretty tough going during the chemo. Never, ever been so sick in all my life. So, it, yeah, it pays to do your regular checks because it was stage three. And if we hadn't done regular checks another couple of months down the track and we could have a different story. Mm. So I went from working full time to being pretty well housebound for six months and that was probably the hardest to deal with because like I said I was a, I'm, I'm a very social butterfly and I feed off other people's energy and when you just go week to week having chemo and all you can do is pretty well drag yourself from the house to the car to the chemo chair back to the car and back to the house for six months that paid paid a big part of you know mentally mm. and then losing losing your hair um, was another big mental um, struggle as well because I thought well I'm not going to let cancer you know ruin my life I'm going to be in control of it and I went and got my hair cut short and then when it was falling out in the shower um, yeah that was like oh my God, this is really happening, isn't it? So, and then the other struggle I had too was when I did actually go to town and have a turban on, it was the people's looks were like, oh, we're so sorry. Yeah, you're going to, you know, it's not good news for you. Like you had that, you couldn't get away from it once you lost your hair. It was in, in your face then and, yeah, shining lights isn't it oh look at yeah i've got cancer yeah. i've got cancer and all you want to do yeah. is be normal but you've got yeah and you just can't you just no. cannot you can't be normal when you're that crook and then i got really crook where i had to spend a week in hospital and a night in icu because my blood counts got very low and i ended up almost having um organ failure out of it too another couple of hours and it would have been a, another different story too so sometimes you just got to look at the positive and think that you know these are the cards that have been dealt so you just mm. got to you know um i learnt a lot of tools when mark had his accident it was minute by minute hour by hour then day by day, then you can work week by week, month by month, and that's just how 
um, I processed it, I suppose. We just take it, yeah, as it goes. You've been an absolute inspiration for me and I'm sure people who listen to this, they're going to get get a lot out of it. So thank you very much for being so vulnerable and being so honest in in sharing Mark's Mark's journey and how you cope with that and also what you've just gone through. Mm. I just hope that if any if any listeners, male and female, go and check themselves tonight in the shower. Yep. It's not just women that come down with um, breast cancer either. So it's exactly right. Just remind the men to check their fellas out too. Mm. Mm. And on that, we shall leave. So thank you so much, Letitia. Appreciate right, your thank time. You, yeah. Now on to today's special guest who I know you are going to love. Melina Bagnato's mission is to help women understand, accept and love the body they're in. She wants other women to feel confident with their own personal style and feel radiant and fabulous as they step out of the house. And who doesn't want a little bit of that in their life? Mel and I became friends in 2022 and I was drawn straight away to her gorgeous magnetic personality. There is so much to Mel. Not only is she an incredibly accomplished businesswoman, she's also an amazing woman. And just like us, she's navigating her way through some of those messy changes and challenges that come as we redefine our middle of life. In today's episode, we cover a lot of topics. And as you'll discover, there wasn't much left off the table. Enjoy our chat. Your career to date has been totally devoted to fashion. So how did you decide that fashion was going to be your life's work? It's a really great question. I It's not something I really was like, that is my life's work. But growing up in a fashion family, my dad is a menswear designer and has been for over 45 years. And I pretty much grew up around fashion. My childhood, you know, as a baby in a bassinet, I was in my dad's workroom watching him sew. As a preschooler, I was at the factory climbing rolls of cardboard. I can still remember the smell of what the workroom smelt like for the patterns for the garments, the sewing machine sound. I literally, my school holidays were cutting things and making it. So I grew up around this fashion and and it's a bit like the mask. Once you're in, you're in. You can't get out. And that's what fashion's like. And I decided, and I just loved it. I loved how my dad, I would watch, you know, as a child, I grew up in a menswear store and that's pretty much did my work experience there, the cleaning and the steaming and things that, you know, well, I don't know if, if young young 20-year-olds do this anymore, but that's what, you know, back mm. in the day, you do for work experience. So you were more attractive as to be employed. But I, I just loved the way my dad would transform a man's confidence and the passion he had for it. So I just fell in love with that. And then the flip side of that is my mum, she wasn't in the fashion, but she was a hairdresser and she took such great pride in the way that she put herself together. And I used to love the way she'd smell and I loved the way she painted her nails and she always had her face on and her hair done. So that fused with my with my dad's passion to help someone else feel good. I just fell in love with that whole concept of of how fashion can make you feel good. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. And and did your father encourage you to pursue that career? Like was he really behind you all the way or go, no, nah, get away from it, Melina, don't get into it? No, he never he never discouraged me, but he also both my parents have always been you do what you want to do um thank god because I'm not very good on a leash um but you know what I loved was that when I was 17 I said I want to work for your dad because you know you think oh that's a good you know cop out or someone work for you 
And my dad said to me, I love you, but until you go and get work experience elsewhere and then you, I see you as a good employee, you're not going to work for me. And at the time oh. I was a bit crushed, yeah. but it was good, tough love because I did. I, part, I paved my own way and I'm definitely not who I am because of where I've come from. I've ridden my dad's coattails by, by any means. Mm. Um, so I, I love that he, it was tough love, uh, but very much my biggest cheerleader now. Oh, that's brilliant. And as well, being not in your father's shadows meant that you could forge something your way. And that would, I imagine, not being in the, in your shoes, but I imagine that would give you a whole lot of self-worth as well going, I did that and I didn't rely on, you know, the name of my father to, to get me to where I am. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think I, I've seen, I, growing up, you know, being around, I was around a lot of events. I was around a lot of fashion events. I was around a lot of business meetings. I was around a lot. I was exposed to so much as a little girl and as a teenager. And I really learned early on, I'd see whether they were rich kids or kids of designers or kids of own people. And I just saw that they just didn't have an appreciation for where they've come from. Um, and the power of being your own person. And I just never wanted to be that person ever. I just, that doesn't fulfill me at all. Mm-hmm. Being known as someone else's offspring or trying to just get something because I, I know someone. It's not, yeah, it's so much more self-worth. We found that for some people COVID is a blessing in disguise. For others, it was the absolute opposite. But it was something that was very important for the growth of your own brand, Style Me Over. And did the sudden growth of your business take you by surprise during that COVID? It really did. I, you know, like everyone, the day, I'll never forget, it was March 19 and I heard on the radio that we're going into whatever was a lockdown. And I remember I was driving with my kids, I'd taken them out for the day down here in Victoria to the um, peninsula. And I was by myself. My husband was away for a boys weekend and my intuition was just like, how can we make this work? That's how my brain brains. And my intuition, as it's always guided me, was like, you need to get on live and talk to your community tonight because everyone's going to be really scared. And what you can offer is your positive energy. That's all I heard. Hmm. And what I what I realized through COVID was I had something that I didn't realize I had and that no one else was giving. And that was a place for people to come and be while everyone was locked out, locked in, locked down, whatever, Australia-wide, and I was able to serve my community and build and connect with them authentically in a way that I'd never really done in my business before. So because of that, my business grew 300%. It was ridiculous. Wow. It was ridiculous. And I also took calculated risks. Like most fashion businesses were like, oh, my God, I'm not going to do anything or I'm not going to buy any more stock because – no one's got money and just buy, buy into the media. Whereas I pivoted and went, okay, everyone's at home. What do they need? Women are, di- are addicted to shopping and are addicted to feel good. It's a dopamine hit. So I'm now going to design a collection that they can wear at home that's going to be comfortable, make them feel good and affordable. So I pretty much changed my entire line. The prices were $20, $30 less. I bought Smarter. I created differently. I took them on the journey. And I was really, I was so surprised to the fact that I couldn't keep up. And whilst it was amazing on one hand, and I had someone that I knew that kept, you know, taking passive aggressive swipes at me, like, well, at least you can stay open. It was like, I felt like saying bitch 
it's much easier to stay home mm. and like be sorry for yourself than me trying to save my business and save the families that are connected to it because I couldn't get a subsidy from the government because I was still turning over a certain amount of money, which wasn't going to be enough, but I didn't do something. So it took me by surprise. Yes, it was amazing, but I actually couldn't keep up. And then I ended up having to hire an extra eight people. And then that meant more people to manage as well as yeah, homeschool. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was chaotic. And that's what led, led me to be burnt out by the end of it. Mm. So I was very surprised. I'm very grateful because more than anything, I was able to connect with more women than I ever have before. And I still have women stop me in the street and say that I helped get them through COVID. And that to me is worth more than the sale that I did. Oh, that's, that's pretty special to hear that. Oh yeah. That's, that's why I do what I do. Yeah. yeah. So I found that this mantra helped me through the whole time. And it was, I am the phoenix that rises from the ashes. That was what I literally would chant to myself. I would chant to my team. And I was like, I'm rising from the ashes. And so I literally lent into that energy. And I was like, I can do this. That's all I kept saying. So how did I do it? I, I I was working crazy hours, like crazy. Not something that I would recommend, but that's how I got through it. I would homeschool during the day and then my husband would put the kids to bed when he'd get home because we were still able to work because of our lives of business. And then I would start working at 8 p.m. and work till 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh. And, yeah, I literally, yeah, I would literally be smashing out stories, talking to suppliers because they were up till midnight as well. I'd be writing my emails to my staff, my directives, um, and then I would be up by 7.30 and doing it all over again with like calls in between. And it was really, really hard. The burnout came and it came on thick by the end of it because your body can't sustain that sort of lack of sleep and adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I did it. <laughs> that, that, that's for the first thing when you started saying, and, and then you, you gave that timeline, I'm going, that is not sustainable. And this is from someone who's, who gets into bed at nine o'clock and now I think that's a late night. Three o'clock to me is probably something I could do once or twice a year and I suffer incredibly. So how you manage yeah. that for such a long time. So what suggestions do you have for women uh, to make peace with their body again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and feel more, more comfortable and confident in their own skin? I think the first thing is to look in the mirror and make friends with her. And I think that, and I go through this every day, so don't think that I'm sitting here going, like, ah, I love my body, it's so amazing. That little voice that when you look in the mirror, it goes, oh, look at your fat arms. Oh, God, look at your fat gut. Look at your, like, like it just, it starts you. So my number one tip would be when you hear that voice in your head, you say, I'm not listening to you. This body's gone through a lot. She carries me every single day. And if you've had children, you'd you know, be grateful for that. Um, and if you haven't, then this is just the way I am. I go through it every day. And what my suggestion is, is buy bigger knickers. Buy bigger knickers <laughs> that are higher. I have the sensible knickers now. Well, mine aren't sensible. Mine are sexy still, right? I've got a couple of those as well. Yeah, but I don't wear them. Yeah, well, it depends when you wear them, right? I wear mine just because, right? I don't wear them just in case I'm going to get lucky, right? I wear my my knickers, right? So my the second thing is go buy clothes that fit you now. Yep. Stop trying to fit into the wardrobe that doesn't fit you at the moment because all it does is it makes you feel ashamed of yourself and then you go and hide. So mm-hmm. you do two things. You either own it or you do something about it, okay? I'm sort of at the moment in between. I've owned it for a while. Now I'm over the roles and the fact that I've got like a bit of a, you know, an upa, the upper punani area. So I'm like, okay, 
I haven't really exercised. Let's try doing that. So I now I'm doing something about it. So um, managing the self-talk and the mindset in the mirror, number one, and telling the bitch to go away, not welcome, and be grateful for your healthy body because there's a lot of women that would love that. The second thing I would say is to buy clothes. Um, and if you can't afford them at the moment, that's fine. Buy affordable interim pieces, like a new pair of jeans that fit, the right top that fits. Shirts are really fantastic. Uh, you can wear them in a lot of sexy ways at the moment. Shirts are my best friends at the moment. And buy underwear that fits you. So I've gone up a full bra size. I've gone up a full knit size. I've actually started wearing G-strings for the first time in like 15 years because they actually are more complementary on a curvier, bigger bottom, which is what my shape is. I'm a pair. And I've gone for high-waisted ones. So I get that, you know, they, it tucks in a little bit of the oopa, but I still feel sexy. So um, hang on, what do you call the oopa? Oopa, your upper punani area. Right, okay, yes. Yeah. We've all got one, you know. Oh, yeah. That, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That nice, you know, that nice puffy bit. Mm. Um, the third thing I would, do, would suggest is really thinking about how you want to feel in your wardrobe, not how you think you should dress because of age or because of your ever-evolving body, but more so how you want to feel. So I believe that you can feel anything you want to feel, not not dependent on your age. So I still, I'm 41, I still want to feel sexy, I want to feel sophisticated, and I want to feel edgy. And then I make sure that my clothes represent that for how my body is at the moment. Mm. How do you get so, the you confidence know. piece though? Because you're you're someone who's always probably worn clothes that might might be you know sexier or or more out there because fashion is 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 your you know is your jam. So what what about somebody who um, is trying to find their style? Who mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what, what do you suggest? Is it the is it really in your head? Is it trying trying on different clothes and seeing what makes you feel good? But you still. Yeah, I suppose you, it's it's no man's land sometimes because oh, again, maybe maybe this is the self talk that you've got to bloody slap out of the way. It's just yeah. that there's so many clothes out there that are designed in reality for a young early twenties yeah. or oh, late teenage woman, and not yes. so much. And then you see some of the frumpiest stuff that's you know on offer. For older women, and and you kind of you know you're never going to be there. You don't want that, but you can't. Yes. Yeah. So how do you it's find a really that good, It's a really great question, and how I would answer it this way is: number one is don't look at the sizes. So, for example, mm-hmm. I bought a, a slip dress the other day, and I went up two sizes to a size fourteen, and I'm not a size fourteen. I'm a size ten. I'm a ten to twelve. I'm like an eleven at the moment. So. The first thing is to not like remove any emotional connection to what the size is because you've got to remember with fashion, the brand decides what sort of woman they want in that brand, okay? So a lot of brands, unfortunately, will say we want petite younger women or we want a petite shape, right? So they only create styles that fit that shape. But then you've got someone that might be in their 50s that are like, hold on a second, I still want to feel sexy and beautiful. I know I am, yes, my body's changed, but I don't want to be wearing goddamn Noni B or Miller's just yet. Like mm-hmm. I want to be wearing something that makes me feel sexy and beautiful. So then you need to go, okay, well, what do I feel good in? Not what is the trend and not what are my friends wearing, but what makes me feel good? So I learned a really long time ago before I became a personal stylist that I used, that I feel really great in jeans. Jeans are my thing, Okay. They're fitted. 
They make they make me feel like I've got a happy ass. They lift my bum. They're nice and tight. I feel secure in it. And I love a cami because I like a little bit of cleavage. So I then will work my wardrobe around that combination, either with shirts or camis or blazers. So then I then create a mix and match wardrobe. But if you're someone who loves dresses, then you need to look in your wardrobe and say, okay, do these dresses make me feel the three words that I want to feel? Or you might go, I love dresses, but why do I have a shitload of like shirt, uh, skirts and jeans? I need to go buy dresses. So it's a it's about understanding what makes you feel good because years ago when I used to party in my 20s, I had a group of girlfriends, they're still my girlfriends, but they're all really petite. They're petite in height, they're petite in size. And they all wore these little, really little girly feminine skirts and dresses and they were in fashion. I thought I probably should wear that too because that's what you think you need to do. You follow a trend because you want to fit in. That's what we do. You can say you don't want to, but we do. We want to belong. And I never forget being this one particular night, being out, and I just was so uncomfortable in my own skin. And I was like, why do I feel uncomfortable? I look great. I bought a new outfit. And I realized I don't know how to dance in little skirts. I'm too ballsy for it. I'm too edgy. And I was like a stunned mullet standing at the bar, <laughs> leaning over, trying to work out which leg to lean on in a, in a little dress. It was, I just realized in that moment, this is what women do. We mm. wear things to fit in and we don't feel ourselves. Mm. that's why I designed a process in my business where when I style women one-on-one the first thing I ask and and more to your point of how do you feel confident is how do you want to feel when you leave the house you're at the front door and you're about to leave what are three words and it's it's an emotion it's never about if I was younger if I was more beautiful if my hair was longer none of those variables matter it's how I want to feel so I always ask myself that and you can have different types of emotional profiles but my main one is always I want to feel sexy, I want to feel sophisticated, and I want to feel edgy. And then I will dress that up and down no matter mm. what. Someone um, else, it might be I want to feel feminine and classic and sophisticated. Well, then you need to be having shirts and blazers and maybe a little bit of floral in there. And then when you wear things that make you feel good and they fit in the right size, you're going to be confident. Yeah. The co- confidence comes from feeling good in your body. Mm. Yeah, makes total sense. It's actually quite simple when we when we stop trying to make it be that you need to be the loudest person in the room, the one with the perfect hair, the one that looks like schmick and, you know, like someone off an Instagram post because that's not confident. Yep. Confident is feeling really comfortable and unapologetic in your own skin and giving zero Fs what anyone thinks because mm-hmm. you feel good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope... And when different women are listening to this and they think about those three words every time that they walk out of that door, how do you want to feel? Yeah, that's really, that's a great message. Well, you are a gorgeous soul and I've loved having this chat with you today and thank you so much for your time and sharing all of the things so openly. As I knew you would be a very open book, but so Always. Open. And I Always really appreciate me. it. My absolute pleasure. It's been, I feel like you and I could just keep talking. Oh, we could. We could indeed. We'll have to do it again soon in person. Pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening and sharing your time with me today. I'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcast or your favourite podcast app to keep spreading these empowering messages. Please share this podcast with other incredible midlife women in your world. Join me again next week for another redefining midlife conversation. Thanks again for tuning in.